0: Thank you for tuning in to Bring It On this evening. In response to recent events related to the George Floyd killing, the crew of Bring It On is hosting a two part discussion to delve into the reaction and horror of the 10 minute video of George Floyd's death at the hands of a police officer and the history of such encounters. And now, here's Bring It On.
2: Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award winning show in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community.
4: Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and we are proud to announce that Bring It On was notified by the Indiana Society of Professional Journalists that we earned the third place. Best in Journalism Award under the category of radio, documentary, or special. Our congratulations to our crew, and especially to our Bringing On Contributors that we have convened today for a special two-part interview entitled, Blue on Black Crime, the recent spate of racially motivated killings and racial profiling of African-Americans
2: by law enforcement. Joining us are Bringing On Contributors, Beverly Callender-Anderson, Eric Love, Amrita Myers, and Cornelius Wright. And as we are conferencing this interview due to COVID-19 precautions, we apologize in advance for any technical hiccups. And with that, welcome everyone to Bring It On.
5: Thank you. Good to be here. Welcome.
2: And it's good to convene everyone once again. Um, We have done this on a number of occasions on this show where we've had roundtables, on uh, very uh, key and salient events and topics. And, and we find ourselves in the midst of another social upheaval moment in America. And um, I overheard a comment expressed on one of the talk shows that the impact of what we saw in that video is reminiscent of the same reaction in many ways to when Emmett Till's mutilated body was displayed before america and i of course remember that jet magazine cover um that had his face and the, i think life or time magazine may have had it but it was just to this day you could close your eyes and see it but it sort of launched a whole movement some say with civil rights it gave uh, sort of the wind behind their 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 sails and moving this this whole discussion forward in america my, my first question as we sort of start off our conversation is, are we again at that moment when this incident uh, where a man is just exterminated on TV after eight minutes, just uh, executed, uh, is, is this going to be a catalyst for something that will hopefully turn this country around? And I just throw that out as the first question.
3: If I can go first, I'm i I'm just going to say that I do think this is very different from the things that have been happening up until this point. Even the uh, marches and protests that we saw after what happened in Ferguson, I don't think compare to what we see, the uprisings that we see sweeping the nation now. I I don't think as a historian, I've been racking my, my mind and honestly, I don't think that anything um, compares um, to what's going on in the country today um, since what has swept the nation in the 1960s. I think you're absolutely correct, the 50s and the 60s. Because really what's happening now is these are not just, they're not riots, they're not even protests. Um, this is really, we're on the brink of revolution. Um, in, in the United States. You know, people are not destroying their neighborhoods, um, right? That we, we understand that what they're taking down are not, this is not, these are not people, they don't own, people don't own anything that they're taking down, right? Target, police stations, city halls, the Daughters of the Confederacy, <laughs> um, these sorts of things that are being taken down Right. Because of systemic racism, because of poverty, the homes, the businesses, everything that are the, the things it's what what they are targeting are things that are owned by outsiders, uh, police stations, et cetera, symbols of systemic and institutionalized racism. And COVID has brought everything right out into the open and very, very quickly. People are homeless. People are hungry. They're unemployed. One in every 2000 African-Americans has died during this pandemic. And Black folks have been on the front lines as essential workers, but nothing has changed. Black women are being shot dead in their beds while they sleep, right? Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Um, Black men are being hunted like animals as they jog down the street, Ahmaud Arbery. And then we saw the most horrifying, um, right? Absolute, I mean, it, it was nothing short of what I call a snuff film, right? George Floyd being murdered on air as he lay on the ground, handcuffed prostrate, as he cried out for his mother, right? It's it's a lie, this whole thing about how we're all in this together, that's absolutely a lie. And so we are now on the brink of of revolution. It's very, very clear, just like the Stamp Act crisis, the Boston Tea Party, I'm an American historian. So if we know our history, we're on the brink of revolution. And, And so to me, this is really, we haven't seen anything like it since the civil rights movement. And so to me, it's very, very different. Um, it's not even like I said, it's not even like what we saw after Ferguson, because we, have, we are now seeing white people who have never spoken up before across classes, across age groups, um, speaking up for the first time. Even evangelical Christians who have never spoken up before are finally speaking up because they are saying this must end, this must stop. And so I think that this moment is incredibly different. And what, my, what I'm saying is how do we utilize this moment so that it's not just one more set of marches and protests, but that we actually use it to drive serious and significant policy change and drive this country forward to make real change, lasting change, permanent change, because this must
1: end this is uh eric love Wow, very very powerful statement um that we just heard absolutely poignant and um i think that the issues are so complex in in many ways because we do have this um groundswell and grassroots movement that took off so quickly Uh, but then we we've also seen undercover police or um, agitators that turn peaceful protests into rioting or looting or damaging property that um, some of the original or- organizers didn't plan on. Um, but I, I think the way that it's taken up, off across the entire country, um, I think this is more than previous uh, movements or previous outcries for um, against injustice. So I hope that uh, if there is a, a revolution or if this is a revolution, there will be some significant political clout that can be um, utilized in the very near future. I, I wish, uh, and I know everybody doesn't believe in the, the voting process. Um, I w- my hope or my wish would be that anyone who's outraged would register to vote and go to the polls, even with voter suppression, gerrymandering and everything that people try to do to prevent us from voting. If those millions of people who are outraged and speaking out and marching, if they would vote, it would overcome any systemic suppression of the vote. So that would be my hope, but I would uh, let someone else chime in.
5: You know, I thought it was very interesting that before um, we got on this conference call, that there was a message from the National uh, Security Advisor that he basically denied systemic racism in police forces across the United States. So as we talk about the systemic problem that we obviously have in this country, when the top legislators basically deny there's a problem, it really troubles me because I, if it doesn't start with them up top, we're in for a long, hot summer. Uh, it's going to have to start at our Supreme Court. It's going to have to go to our federal court, our state court, down to our police forces, our prosecutors. It's a process that can actually start immediately, but it has to start at the top And until those things are actually taken care of in a systemic way. Uh, fair laws for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of money, regardless of race, regardless of anything other than what you did until we start getting things that's fair, fair for everyone. And in today's age, with the advent of the cell phones and the internet, everyone sees everything immediately. We're locked in our homes. with nowhere to go. But look at these things.
0: No, I was going to say, um, I'd I, I like to read a statement. I was going to take a little bit of, um, well, I disagree with it, just a little bit. I think this this season has the potential for change. But I don't know that I am of the belief that true systemic change will be made. Although there are a lot of people joining this movement right now because um, of what we're seeing. Um, I think that with the onset of, I mean, just the internet, the 24 hour news cycle, seeing this over and over again, people can only be traumatized so much and they start to withdraw. And so unless some movement is made immediately um, and people see some type of positive change or, or success in a way, um, I I don't know. I mean, it was very interesting to see Amish folk coming out protesting, something you never ever see. But then there was also the infiltration by white supremacists. and And the other thing I'll say, especially in um Minneapolis, there were black owned businesses being destroyed, and so there is a whole historical black neighborhood uh well maybe not historical but but where there had been some some black businesses that were uh pretty important to the neighborhood and not necessarily destroyed by the people who went out for the peaceful protests who wanted to change, but by maybe the white supremacists or the folks that were that were coming out to um be more destructive and then everything gets painted with that brush. And and so when everything gets painted with that brush, then that becomes um problematic to long term systemic change. And and especially if you're talking about, you know, from the federal government down. I think if there's gonna be change, it's gonna have to be from the ground up.
3: But I agree with you, Beverly, I like that's what I was saying is that we have we're at a critical moment where so many people are signing on and, and joining on, but we have to take advantage of the opportunity to actually push real policy change through. If we don't take advantage of the opportunity to go to the polls and push for policy changes, then we've lost the momentum. So I agree with you on that completely. Yeah, yeah that's right.
2: I have, a, I have a quick interjection I want to make. Is it possible to legislate our way out of this or or do we have to have something more substantive occur? I mean something needs to resonate in the hearts of people.
0: You can't legislate attitudes and and so yeah, you can legislate behavior and you can make it um lead for things to happen. I I heard uh Governor Cuomo in New York saying um something about needing to have um a uniform code across police agencies in the country about what was improper behavior that right now, you know, various police agencies, they're, they're policing themselves and they have different meanings of what is excessive force and different meanings about what's improper, depending on who they are, where they are, what their training is. Um, And so, yeah, that kind of behavior can be legislated, but that deep-seated, hatred and 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 um and i don't even know if it's a hatred i think about the cooper woman in central park in new york who weaponized um christian cooper's blackness to call the police because he asked her to leash her dog i don't know if that was hatred but it is trained behavior it is learned behavior over the years folk have learned especially if i'm a white woman that I can crawl and I can cry and I can say this black man is attacking me and the police are going to come and he may end up dead, but you know, it's okay because I'm a white woman. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that that's a hatred as much as that is the culture. Um, and so, I, and I don't know that legislation can do anything for that.
3: Well, education yeah. has to start, it, I mean, we have to attack it from multiple directions, right? It's not just a unidirectional issue. But, I mean, I am going to say with regards to the police that we can talk about diversity training and sensitivity training until we're blue in the face. <laughs> but I, frankly, am of the opinion that, frankly, I'm, I've am i come to a point in my life where I believe that we need to start defunding the police. That's the only way it's going to start to. I mean, I believe in. I mean, mass incarceration has gotten to the point where it's out of control. I don't. I believe in abolishing the prison state. I also believe that the only way that the police are going to start to change is when we start taking away their money.
2: That's an interesting point. If I could just do a quick ID. If you if you've joined us here on Bring It On, we're having a roundtable discussion with several Bring It On contributors, and gathered here tonight, we have Beverly Calendar Anderson. Eric Love, Amrita Myers, Cornelius Wright, and, again, and, and of course our uh, co-anchor uh, William Hosea. Uh, interesting point Amrita just made about defunding the police. Uh, there's a unique history I've been I've been hearing about the origins of the police and that how were how were they first started. Amrita, you you commented on this in a previous show. Can you? Can you talk about that and then maybe begin a dialogue or we can go in a direction of the historical context of this whole thing? The police, uh, racial profiling and the like. Uh, there are a lot of different directions we could take with this. But can you kind of share with us this, this notion of how the police entity uh, as an entity started? Sure.
3: Well, the police in this country evolved directly out of the institution of the slave patrol. I mean, that's that's where they come out of. White folks in this country were, you know, were terrified of black people. And uh, they also viewed black people as their property, plain and simple. Uh, And so in the South, it's, you know, all white men have to give one day a month, one night a month to the slave patrol. And they literally gather together and they patrol the roadways whether in the city or in the country, to patrolling the roadways to make sure that no Black person is out on the roadways at night. And if they catch a Black person out after dark, they stop them, frisk them, demand ID, demand papers, in order to assess whether or not that person is out um, for justifiable cause, right? So that Black person would have to present papers from their master, Saying that they were out, uh, you know, running a legitimate errand, or they were out, you know, with you know appropriate paperwork, saying, "Hey, my master is allowing me to go visit my spouse on another plantation." Um, you know, otherwise, they were um, assumed to be a fugitive on the run, or you know, out, you know, up to no good, you know, treachery, committing treason, arson, plotting a rebellion, et cetera they were they were beaten they were hauled off to the local jail and then if they survived turned back over to their owner right even if they were, if they were a free black person they had to have their free papers on them in order to prove that they were free and if not they were assumed to be a runaway but even if they had their freedom papers on them a lot of the time we know that there were people who had those freedom papers ripped away from them shredded set on fire and those people were then hauled off to the local jail and put up on the auction block and sold into slavery. So this is where the the Slave Patrol is directly the historical precedent that sets up policing in the United States. And even in the North, slave, even though we don't mean, of course we do have slavery in the North before it's abolished, but Northern policing systems arise out of this understanding that white people have to be protected in their property against black people who are a threat to white people's property. And all of these laws in the North are created to protect white people's property from black people. So in the South, black people are the property. And in the North, white people's property has to be protected against black people who are out and who are a threat to white people's private property. So how do you all of a sudden go from that system in the antebellum period to all all of a sudden the 13th Amendment is passed and cops are supposed to somehow view Black people as being citizens in need of protection when they've always been taught that Black people are a threat to property or property themselves? It is a historical precedent that has made policing at its root system racist. This is a structurally racist system. It's institutionally and structurally based in white supremacy. That's the problem. So as far as I'm concerned, you can talk all you want to about bad apples. No, sorry. The tree is rotten because its roots are dipped in the blood of white supremacy. You can't get good fruit from a bad tree. Done. Defund the police. And when cops start misbehaving, take away their pensions, defund the system, abolish the carceral state, abolish policing. I'm done. It doesn't work.
2: I've noticed that police are, are getting more militarized uh, where, you know, gone long gone are the, the beat patrols. Now they're in, you know, cars that are souped up with blacked out windows. They're wearing sunglasses, leather gloves, and as if, you know, they're in riot mindset continually, but they're militarized now. And they, I've heard comments on TV about how their, their training, which may not may or may not be legal, uh, sort of um, resembles something you might learn in basic training as far as, you know, how to inflict pain, punishment, how to dis- disable uh, someone, you know, gone are the days of questioning, it seems. It's react first and ask questions later. Am I wrong?
5: Well, I also believe that people are tired of the police getting special treatment. If you or I were to kill someone, whether it was an accident or not, we are going to be immediately incarcerated. Um, when Aubrey, uh, when Ahmad Aubrey was murdered in Georgia, literally it took a month before we even knew about it, before anything was done, and without the public outcry, I very seriously. If anything would have been done. So when we see instances of blatant murder in front of us, the police are treated on a different level as the average person. Right there, inherently, we have a problem that has to be dealt with.
3: This is state sanctioned violence. It's murder sanctioned by the government.
0: And where I, I mean, and I agree with Clarence about the, I'm sorry, with Cornelius about the special treatment. Um, when you talk about defunding police, which actually is abolishment of 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 law enforcement in that in that realm, how then does order and law become how how is it enforced I mean and, and that's just it's not a it's, it's it's not a criticism it's just a question uh, how do how do we keep order how do we enforce? Uh, Laws, or do we abolish all laws as well? Like I don't, I don't understand.
3: I'm not talking about anarchy. I'm not talking about getting rid of the government. But I'm, I'm of the opinion that we don't. The reason that we have prisons and the reason that we have police is because we live in a system where people do not have the things that they need to survive. And we do not give people human dignity. We do not have basic universal income. We do not have universal health care. We do not have decent housing. COVID has brought everything to the forefront. Our people are dying. And at the same time, they are essential workers and on the front lines getting sick. And at the same time, they're being murdered on the streets. While we lie about how we're all in this together, if we give people dignity, if we give them food, housing ba health care, basic income, if we give them the 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 ability to live and take care of themselves,
1: my initial thoughts were along the lines of what what Beverly was thinking um just like if if we defund the police and how do they you know how do they do the function in the you know in government that they do, but uh, Mitra mentioned that it's not anarchy. It's not without government. Do do you want to, and I'm not sure, tell me what you, how to pronounce your name correctly.
3: Oh, it's Amrita. It's just Rita with an A-M in front of it.
1: Okay. Amrita. Thank you. Again, it's it's very complex. um, I'm still wrapping my head around some of these things and uh, it's been an emotional week again i i want to see that uh this death wasn't in vain um george lloyd was his his murder was not in vain i would like to see some systemic change um as far as the police policing goes you know um i read an article a few years ago i tried to find it and i couldn't but it was talking about a lot of white supremacist uh, members of white supremacist groups joined police forces quietly. without much fanfare and basically are embedded in police departments all across the country. And there isn't a test or a diversity and I do diversity and inclusion training. There isn't a a test that tells you if somebody's racist, and if if there was, they still wouldn't be honest about it. So we'd have to have, you know, validation of the tests and triangulation and all these things to to show what someone's real intent is um so that's that'll be difficult uh, i think what a phenomenon that i'm seeing for the first time is hundreds maybe thousands of police officers speaking out against what happened some are joining in the in the protests the marches the peaceful protests the peaceful marches um i've seen some really moving um, videos and um Social media posts from police officers saying that they have to go to work, they have to work at these protests, but they're on the side of the protesters they think is wrong. Um, and uh, with all the other killings that we've seen, I haven't seen that kind of reaction from police themselves.
4: You know, Eric, uh, you you kind of came back to the same point that you were making before about voting and something yeah. that. Always say is that uh, all roads lead back to voting because you have all of the elements that are in place to make this a turning point to make this whole uh, uh, issue pivotal but this thing could live or die based on the leadership that we have and I think we all know it's gonna die a quick death at the hands of the current leadership especially when you have people like the NSA National Security Director talking about uh, systemic systemic racism does not exist. And Beverly, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about seeing people who are responding and chiming in for the first time, like the Amish. And I want to add in there the National Fraternal Order of Police. I have never once seen them come out against a a, a police officer in one of these incidents. But I think the reason that people were shocked was was because of the sadistic nature. There was something sadistic, sadistic about how this guy uh, died. When that officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck, hands in his pockets, that means the full weight of his body was on that man's neck. He wasn't being supported by anything but his knee. Hands in his pocket and he's just casually looking around as if nothing is going on. Two minutes and 53 seconds after George Floyd was non-responsive, that officer's knee was still on his neck. Mm-hmm. So Everybody who sees that video was shocked by that. When I, five minutes after I saw it, I sent it to my wife. She came downstairs with, with tears in her eyes. That's, he, that's how Im- immediate the impact was
1: on her. Additionally to the cop with his knee on, on George's neck, the other two police officers around on the other side of the truck were also having pressure on George's body. Um, Some of the uh, footage that was released later from across the street behind the police officers show that there are three men up to 500 pounds of weight of pressure on someone who is laying face down, stomach down, hands behind their back. I don't know if you've ever seen a boa constrictor. You know, they constrict and you breathe out. And as soon as you breathe out, they constrict again and make it tighter. So then you can't breathe in. so as he's breathing out, their pressure is on him again, and it restricts his ability to breathe in again. And um, so I, I think that there are, again, multiple multiple reasons for his death, including his neck. But I think it's asphyxiation, and they're literally crushing him um, with all three of those officers, and the fourth officer um, preventing anybody else from interfering um, to try to save him.
3: And I think it's really important to understand here the way white supremacy works is that it co-ops not just white police officers but police officers of other races and colors as well because one of those officers was a person of color.
5: The murdering officer was actually married to his sister. He was a person of color who since divorced him which makes it even worse. Uh, It's just so sad. I want to go back to something that was mentioned earlier about the police uh, being defunded which we can't do, but there's one thing that I think that can definitely happen that would change some attitudes. If we started allowing lawsuits to go against their pensions, the other police officers are going to speak up because <laughs> that's their money too. So I think, you know, what seems to affect the white community is the almighty dollar. And as Marita and said earlier, once, once that starts getting affected and you see some serious change there, it, it, it your mistake is affected to my money, I'm gonna make sure that you're not gonna be a fool in my department. One other thing that that uh, is going on is obviously, and we, we talked about, the, uh, we did a show with a couple of police officers, William and myself. And one of the questions I asked was that, how come every couple of years, there's not a mental, psych, uh, a mental test done on the officers? If you're in war, if you're out in the streets, I'm sure it's very stressful. And even those officers who may have the best of intentions after being out there in the battlefield I truly believe they've got some issues that need to be dealt with and I think systemically they need to make sure that these officers are going in there with the mental health uh help that they need to do the job properly also
0: well and not only every couple of years but you know even after an incident like this with George Floyd or if it was Eric Garner or uh Trayvon Martin I mean who whatever the event was I think there needs to be some kind of um, mental health services provided for officers because, I mean, and, and I remember during the Ferguson um, event, all pol- and even with this one, all police officers do get painted with the same brush. It doesn't matter what statement you come out with. It doesn't matter that a police chief marched with some of the marchers yesterday. It doesn't matter because you're in uniform, you do get looked at with that same um, disdain that the person who actually did the murder gets. And so at some point that's got to impact um, officers. And so I think after every one of these events and especially George Floyd, because how many times have we seen the video? And it's almost like, I mean, I personally don't want to see the video anymore. I've seen it and I've seen it multiple times. But every time you see it, it's traumatizing. So whatever is in that police officer's head, whether they agree with the actions of children, I think his name is, or not, um, that's going to be reinforced when you see it. And so I think that that mental health uh, piece needs to be ongoing, uh, just not you know like biannually or annually. But most most police officers don't even take a physical every year. So You know, it's it's not that they're not concerned about mental health. They're not even really as concerned, I think, as they should be about their physical health.
1: So, just along the lines of the mental state of police officers, some some people join the the military or the police department because um, they were unimportant in their lives in other ways. You know, they Mm -hmm. it could be. you know, a syndrome like uh, Napoleon syndrome, they're little or they're not popular or they, they didn't feel powerful in their, in their life. And so they join, they get a, a position like this and then they get drunk with power. Um, if you put on top of that uh, racism or some disdain for um, poor people or people of color or any marginalized group, homeless people, mentally ill people, that just exacerbates that issue. Then on top of that, if you are removed from a certain community, if you're a white police officer and you patrol a black neighborhood, you're called to that neighborhood for, for, the, for crimes, for the worst things. You never see the best part of the neighborhood. All you ever see are when you're called for something going wrong. So you start to think that that's the only thing that happens in that neighborhood. You don't see um, the creativity, the intelligence, the people working, Um, the professionals, the school, you don't see all the positive things. You just see the negative, and then you start to think that that community only has negative because that's the only thing you see because that's the only time you engage with certain communities. I think all of that exacerbates the issue. Um, All of that should be addressed and should be able to be addressed, but it's not being addressed.
3: This is one of the things that I was going to say as well, Eric, is that um, if you look historically, um, unfortunately, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that, right, hyper-masculinity, patriarchy is an issue at play here, that that there are unfortunately a certain, and I'm not saying it's about everybody, but unfortunately there's a, a, a real sort of problem with, right, a certain element of person who's drawn to the military and to the armed, you know, to the armed forces and to the police,
1: mm-hmm. um,
3: you know, to the police force. And that if you, uh, how many of, how many police officers have a history of domestic violence, right? That there's this has been coming out more and more over the last two decades, right? That they haven't been vigilant in doing these background checks on, on these officers, right? So mental health checks, domestic violence checks, et cetera, right? These things are not, uh, these are intertwined issues. That these are folks who have serious problems, and so, you know, patriarchy, misogyny, racism. And why are certain people with certain backgrounds attracted to these particular kinds of occupations? Right. Yeah. Sectional issues that we need to talk about. They are structural.
1: Mm-hmm. I,
2: well, I think be, that that be, before sense. we, I was gonna make a quick com- comment, real quick. Um, I I heard something in that that. Part, elements of that are, I agree with, but then there were elements that I could not agree with because I, I don't think it's just germane to someone who joins the armed services or the police department. All of them don't display those character, characteristics. All of them don't. There are some that do.
3: I said there's no because,
2: yeah. because. Okay. Okay. Well. Well. Let me. Let me. Let me. Let me finish because um, some of them bring some of those issues into it. Some of that develops because of the extreme stress that's in there. Uh, But then again, I have to say, if you look at even our religious institutions, there are people within those institutions that are abusers and domestic violence abusers through a whole host of things. Some brought it in there and some because of the drunkenness of power that I heard somebody reference Uh, Sometimes power is an interesting thing. It 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 can magnify within you, uh, and and it can create something within you if if you're not well grounded. So I just wanted to throw that out. And I heard Beverly. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just I just need to insert that.
0: Yeah, you meant to cut me off, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but I was going to say something similar, um, uh, Clarence, because. I I do think that um, there are people who get into various professions. And and, and I think it's more about power than it is about any particular profession. And you mentioned the clergy. And I know that, you know, there there are clergy people who have been abusive either to children or to their spouses. There are, you know, CEOs. and, And so the police are not Um, I don't, I'm I'm missing a word, but but they're not the only ones who who have that. But I do think that when there are people that get in power, if they are power hungry, and, and as someone was saying before, you know, if they are the small men or they don't have that power at home, then everybody needs to feel validated. And so if you're not validated at home, you have to be validated somewhere. And what that validation looks like may take on um a difference depending on where you are and and so if you are a police officer with a gun and and truthfully what's the difference between a criminal and a police officer police officers are sanctioned by the government i mean they they have guns they can beat up people they can shoot people they can they can pretty much they they feel like they can do what they want to and and i hope that my police chief doesn't hear this and get mad at me but um (laughs) but i mean you know there there really are a lot of similarities between the police and the, and the people that the police are arresting or 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 chastising or whatever it is they doing putting in control so uh, but but i just didn't want to let that lay that the that police officers are some kind have some kind of exclusive uh, ex- exclusivity to to spousal abuse
2: yeah, we allow our our. I guess to mute their phones, I just want to do a, one last uh, ID in this first hour. Um, so if you just join, Bring It On, and again, I asked our guests if you could all just, there we go. Uh, we sort of squelched that there. Um, if you just joined Bring It On, we have the, the, the distinct honor of, of just assembling some of our Bring It On contributors who through the years have just, their input into this show is the reason why we just won another best in journalism award because they bring to the table their their years of experience and their expertise and and their acuity to just issues that are really impacting all of america and especially the african-american community joining us today we have uh bringing on contributor beverly calendar anderson eric love and myers Cornelius wright and of course our co-anchor william hosea our our conversation is one that we have had on this show in the past. Uh, Everything from profiling to training to even how to survive being pulled over by police. Uh, But this phenomenon is not going away. And here we are starting another summer in America. And if last month or so is any indication, this could be a rocky summer in 2020. The title today is Blue on Black Crime, the recent spate of racially motivated killings and racial profiling of, Ameri- of African Americans by law enforcement. And uh, William, I think you had a point that you were bringing in right before I kind of jumped in there.
4: Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to say to Beverly, I will see your comments and, and raise you one. Uh, police do have power to do some of the things you said, but police exclusively have the power to detain you, to judge you and to execute you. They can make that decision within a split second. and uh, since I heard uh, some of my colleagues invoke uh, comments about the military, I want to make a comment on that. Um, I didn't, as a veteran, I didn't take any of your comments to be a blanket uh, statement about the military. My my personal reason for joining, I was a 17 year old looking for some direction and it was a good fit. Uh, I also wanted to make one other comment about the military with regard to some, some training or treatment that the police need. Back in 1994, 1995, the military had a uh, horrible problem dealing with sexual harassment. So what we did is the Department of Defense stood down the entire military and everybody underwent sexual harassment training. That didn't get rid of the problem, but it, it, it's like Beverly said, we can't legislate um, your mindset, but we can legislate your behavior. So, but and that's exactly what police need. They need to take a time out and they need to have some comprehensive sensitivity training. And you can't just do it that one time. In the military, we did it every, to this day, they do it every single year. Every man and woman in the military has to undergo uh, a certain amount of training on sexual harassment, uh, racism uh, and discrimination.
0: Well, and I know that we're talking about the police right now and the title of this um, was, a, you know, black and blue. Um, but I also think about, and, and I think about the Ahmaud Aubrey's and the, and, and the guy, I just lost his name, in New York. And it's there, it's not that just the police still, that Christian Cooper, thank you. Um, It's not just that the police feel like they have a right to police black bodies. It seems like everybody feels like they have a right to police black bodies, you you know, and 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 to do with what they want. And and that that's problematic. And yes, the police can go through that training, and they can go. And and I think you're right, William, that it can't be a one-time thing. You have to keep doing it. But what happens to all the Karen's and Becky and Susans and the rest of them out there that, that feel like, you know, well, we're just, we're just, you don't, you have no right to be in this space. And so now I get to call the police on you.
1: Yeah. There has been some <coughs> legislation that for people who call 911 for non-emergency situations, like to report a black woman asleep in the dorm or black women taking too much Time to play their round of golf whatever there there's been some legislation that's starting to be introduced
5: that would penalize people for doing that for doing that
1: Cornelius, you were saying something
5: yeah i was I was just about to say some of the same thing, but I wanted to also kind of switch gears a little bit. I saw something that was interesting that um uh, their president today designated Antifa as a terrorist group but hasn't said one word about the Klan. Therein lies another part of the problem when at the top, they're willing to call one group out but not another. Um, with the, We're going through, as everyone has said, some times that none of us have seen with the COVID virus, it's really shut things down. Uh, the economy, the virus, rioting in the streets. If people don't get out and vote, to vote this nut out of office now, then I'm truly afraid of the direction this country's going in. I I mean, if if what's going on in our country does not get you off your couch to go vote, what will?
3: Someone earlier in the case said that, you know, it has to start from the top. And I thought to myself, well, but look at what's happening at the top and what's been happening for years. And just the other day, The leader of this nation tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting will start. What kind of example has the leadership of this nation set for the Amys and the Karens and the Chads? Because that's why they think that they can pick up their cell phone in Central Park, call 911, and turn on the waterworks and fake hysteria and say, I'm being threatened by an African-American man, come save me. Full well knowing that that most likely will mean that that black man will be shot.
0: And it's only by the grace of God that Christian Cooper is still alive. And had he not had a cell phone, he probably would have been, had he not recorded that entire incident. You know, he, he may have been just a, another dead black man.
3: And we have so many cell phone videos, and those folks still ended up dead. Mm -hmm. What's, What's amazing to me is that cell phone video isn't stopping people from shooting people and suffocating people and doing the crimes. Derek Chauvin stared straight into that camera and dug his knee even harder into George Floyd's neck and suffocated him for eight, nine minutes. He, he didn't
5: care. And just not too long ago, a New York police officer ran his car into a crowd. 13 people were injured. I'm not sure if there were any fatalities, and the governor and mayor are dealing with that right now.
2: Well, and and there were people during uh, the protests, or as they want to call it, the riots, that were manhandled, and um, it was sort of precipitated by the police. So, Yeah, a lot of that needs to get looked at. One thing um, that that really caught my attention in all this is that it's one thing to talk about the encounter that you have with police officers. And then it's another to talk about when you're incarcerated or when you're taken to jail or uh, the gentleman that was put in the back of a van and basically was bounced around and up. uh, Yeah, uh, Freddie Gray gray
1: in Baltimore, Maryland,
2: trying to even get to to, to the lockup. You, you know your rights are taken away once those cuffs goes on go on and and it's really a hope and a prayer that you survive on the other end. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing the front face of all this are those wearing uniform, and then the other reality is you got to survive uh, the encounter. And and every you know most all black men know that. And then there's some that are kind of deluded thinking, well, I've lived long enough in white society where I'm kind of immune to that. Well, I think not. Um, So, I mean, there there are all types of dynamics to this. And while we have about three minutes left in this first part one, perhaps uh, next week we could talk about just some of the social dynamics, you know, living while black and how this all factors into that. But to sort of round this up, let's go around and and get a, a final uh thought from everyone we have about three minutes i'll withhold mine and i'm sure william if you want to hold withhold yours but so we'll go around and get comments
0: but clarence i just I, i'll start because i just really want to respond to what you said and and please don't think this is exclusive to black men because black women are being killed as well black women are being killed in their beds in their homes you know they are being killed in jails, and so this is not exclusive to black men um, this is this is a black people issue. I just but what Beverly say, really just said, <laughs> because I just can
3: say we can't forget Brianna Taylor, Bland and others because from Iana Jones who was is seven to grandmothers who are being assaulted by police and beaten up on the street, our sisters are being assaulted
1: raped, and murdered a long time ago. This is a black people issue. Ages. Yep. all ages all backgrounds. One more issue that we didn't talk about and we probably won't get to, but I just have to mention it. The um, number of trans women of color as well that have been brutalized by police, um, brutalized by society, but also by police um, as well. And uh, I know that adds another layer of complexity, um, but they may be the least valued human bodies that we have in our society, because even even our own brothers and sisters don't value trans women of color. And so uh, I just had to mention that.
2: But I, I want to thank, I just want to go on record by thanking uh, those who joined us today uh, for part one of this roundtable. Uh, we've had bringing on contributors Beverly Calendar Anderson, Eric Love, Amrita Myers, and Cornelius Wright, and of course, uh, William Hosea uh, joining us as anchor. Uh, we look forward to next Monday's Part 2 Dialogue on Blue on Black Crime, the recent spate of racially motivated killings and racial profiling of African Americans by law enforcement. And Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is On at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bring on at wfhb.org. And our show's executive producer is yours truly, with help from WFHB's News Department Director, Cade Young. Tonight's board engineer is Cade Young, and our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone.
4: I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.
1: Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events
2: affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond.
3: Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana,
1: and financially supported by listeners like you.